This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Lundeen, Chicago, Illinois. Chapter 15 The Round Table From The King Arthur and His Knights Section of The Age of Chivalry by Thomas Bullfinch The famous enchanter Merlin had exerted all his skill in fabricating the round table. Of the seats which surrounded it he had constructed thirteen, in memory of the thirteen apostles. Twelve of these seats only could be occupied, and they only by knights of the highest fame. The thirteenth represented the seat of the traitor Judas. It remained always empty. It was called the perilous seat. Ever since a rash and haughty Saracen knight had dared to place himself in it, when the earth opened and swallowed him up. In our great hall there stood a vacant chair, fashioned by Merlin ere he passed away, and carven with strange figures, and in and out the figures, like a serpent, ran a scroll of letters in a tongue no man could read. And Merlin called it the Siege Perilous, perilous for good and ill. For there, he said, no man could sit, but he should lose himself. The Holy Grail A magic power wrote upon each seat the name of the knight who was entitled to sit in it. No one could succeed to a vacant seat unless he surpassed in valor and glorious deeds the knight who had occupied it before him. Without this qualification, he would be violently repelled by a hidden force. Thus proof was made of all those who presented themselves to replace any companions of the order who had fallen. One of the principal seats, that of Marant of Ireland, had been vacant ten years, and his name still remained over it ever since the time when that distinguished champion fell beneath the sword of Sir Tristram. Arthur now took Tristram by the hand and led him to that seat. Immediately the most melodious sounds were heard, and exquisite perfumes filled the place. The name of Morant disappeared, and that of Tristram blazed forth in light. The rare modesty of Tristram had now to be subjected to a severe task, for the clerks, charged with the duty of preserving the annals of the round table, attended, and he was required by the law of his order to declare what feats of arms he had accomplished to entitle him to take that seat. This ceremony being ended, Tristram received the congratulations of all his companions. Sir Lancelot and Guinevere took the occasion to speak to him of the fair Isoude and to express their wish that some happy chance might bring her to the kingdom of Loegria. While Tristram was thus honored and caressed at the court of King Arthur, the most gloomy and malignant jealousy harassed the soul of Mark. He could not look upon Isolt without remembering that she loved Tristram, and the good fortune of his nephew goaded him to thoughts of vengeance. He at last resolved to go disguised into the kingdom of Loegria, attack Tristram by stealth, and put him to death. He took with him two knights brought up in his court, who he thought were devoted to him, and not willing to leave Isolde behind, named two of her maidens to attend her, together with her faithful Brangwain, 
and made them accompany him. Having arrived in the neighborhood of Camelot, Mark imparted his plan to his two knights, but they rejected it with horror. Nay, more, they declared that they would no longer remain in his service, and left him, giving him reason to suppose that they should repair to the court to accuse him before Arthur. It was necessary for Mark to meet and rebut their accusation, so leaving Isolde in an abbey, he pursued his way alone to Camelot. Mark had not ridden far when he encountered a party of knights of Arthur's court, and would have avoided them, for he knew their habit of challenging to adjust every stranger knight whom they met. But it was too late. They had seen his armor, and recognized him as a Cornish knight, and at once resolved to have some sport with him. It happened they had with them Dagwinet, King Arthur's fool, who, though deformed and weak of body, was not wanting in courage. The knights, as Mark approached, laid their plan that Dagwinet should personate Sir Lancelot of the Lake and challenge the Cornish knight. They equipped him in armor belonging to one of their number who was ill and sent him forward to the crossroad to defy the strange knight. Mark, who saw that his antagonist was by no means formidable in appearance, was not disinclined to the combat, but when the dwarf rode towards him, calling out that he was Sir Lancelot of the Lake, his fears prevailed. He put spurs to his horse and rode away at full speed, pursued by the shouts and laughter of the party. Meanwhile, Isolde, remaining at the abbey with her faithful Brengwain, found her only amusement in walking occasionally in a forest adjoining the abbey. There, on the brink of a fountain girdled with trees, she thought of her love, and sometimes joined her voice and her harp in lays reviving the memory of its pains or pleasures. One day, the caitiff knight, Breus the Pitiless, heard her voice, concealed himself, and drew near. She sang, Sweet silence, shadowy bower, and verdant lair, ye court my troubled spirit to repose, whilst I such dear remembrance rises there, awaken every echo with my woes. Within these woods, by nature's hand arrayed, a fountain springs and feeds a thousand flowers. Ah, how my groans do all its murmurs aid, how my sad eyes do swell it with their showers. What doth my knight the while? To him is given a double meed, in love and arms reprise, him the round table elevates to heaven. Tristram, ah me, he hears not Isolde's cries. Breus the pitiless, who, like most other caitiffs, had felt the weight of Tristram's arms, and hated him accordingly, at hearing his name breathed forth by the beautiful songstress, impelled by a double impulse, rushed forth from his concealment and laid hands on his victim. Isolde fainted, and Brengwain filled the air with her shrieks. Brius carried Isolde to the place where he had left his horse, but the animal had got away from his bridle and was at some distance. He was obliged to lay down his fair burden and go in pursuit of his horse. Just then a knight came up, drawn by the cries of Brengwain, and demanded the cause of her distress. She could not speak, but pointed to her mistress lying insensible on the ground. 
Breus had by this time returned, and the cries of Brengwain, renewed at seeing him, sufficiently showed the stranger the cause of the distress. Tristam spurred his horse toward Breus, who, not unprepared, ran to the encounter. Breus was unhorsed and lay motionless, pretending to be dead. But when the stranger knight left him to attend to the distressed damsels, he mounted his horse and made his escape. The knight, now approached Isolde, gently raised her head, drew aside the golden hair which covered her countenance, and gazed thereon for an instant, uttered a cry, and fell back, insensible. Brengwain came. Her cares soon restored her mistress to life, and they then turned their attention to the fallen warrior. They raised his visor and discovered the countenance of Sir Tristram. Isolde threw herself on the body of her lover and bedewed his face with her tears. Their warmth revived the night, and Tristram, on awakening, found himself in the arms of his dear Isolde. It was the law of the round table that each night after his admission should pass the next ten days in quest of adventures, during which time his companions might meet him in disguised armor and try their strength with him. Tristram had now been out seven days, and in that time had encountered many of the best knights of the round table, and acquitted himself with honor. During the remaining three days, Isolde remained at the abbey under his protection, and then set out with her maidens, escorted by Sir Tristram, to rejoin King Mark at the court of Camelot. This happy journey was one of the brightest epochs in the lives of Tristram and Isolde. He celebrated it by a lay upon the harp in a peculiar measure, to which the French give him the name of Triolet. With fair Isolde and with love, ah, how sweet the life I lead! How blessed for ever thus to rove, with fair Isolde and with love, as she wills, I live and move, and cloudless days to days succeed, with fair Isolde and with love. Ah, how sweet the life I lead! Journeying on from break of day, feel you not fatigued, my fair? Yon green turf invites to play. Journeying on from day to day, ah, let us to that shade away, were it but to slumber there. Journeying on from break of day, feel you not fatigued, my fair? They arrived at Camelot, where Sir Lancelot received them most cordially. Isolde was introduced to King Arthur and Queen Guinevere, who welcomed her as a sister. As King Mark was held in arrest under the accusation of the two Cornish knights, Queen Isolde could not rejoin her husband, and Sir Lancelot placed his castle of La Joyeuse Garde at the disposal of his friends, who there took up their abode. King Mark, who found himself obliged to confess the truth of the charge against him, or to clear himself by combat with his accusers, performed the former, and King Arthur, as his crime had not been perpetrated, remitted the penalty, only enjoining upon him, under pain of his signal displeasure, to lay aside all thoughts of vengeance against his nephew. In the presence of the king and his court, all parties were formally reconciled. Mark and his queen departed for their home, and Tristram remained at Arthur's court. 
End of story. This recording is in the public domain.